0: Dead Stick Radio, Episode 4, recorded May 17th, 2019. Today, we interview Sophia Wells, the CFI of the Edmonton Flying Club. Well,
1: this is Episode 4 of Dead Stick Radio. And today we have Sophia Wells, who's the Chief Flight Instructor of Edmonton Flying Club. Mm Mm-hmm. So do you want to uh, get started maybe a little bit with some of your background? Like, how did you get into flying? Were you always interested or did you stumble upon it?
2: It's such a cheesy, cheesy story. Um, I started off, um, I'm from a small town in southern Alberta called Crozes Pass, and uh, I, I was the kind of kid that didn't. I didn't want to be seen at that point because I all of a sudden between like grade, this would have been grade four and five, I just ballooned. So I was kind of like, you know, one of the cool skinny kids. And then all of a sudden I was like four foot nothing and 200 pounds. So (laughs) junior high wasn't fun for me at the start because in uh, the way the past was is you went to like you move schools in grade five. And so that that move just it was bad because I got made fun of and all these mean nicknames and stuff so I just didn't want to deal with anybody I just wanted to hang out with my parents and that was it because they didn't make fun of me um and uh I had you know one or two friends I suppose but for the most part I was just doing my own thing, um, and we lived just outside of town, and this new family moved in, or it was, I guess, a you know, husband and wife, and it took us forever to figure out what he did. He kept saying, oh, yeah, we're for the government, government. Turned out the guy was an F-18 fighter pilot out of Cold Lake, <laughs> so no wonder he, like, oozed cool. Like, he was just one of those people, super intimidating and, like, cool, and uh, he finally kind of, I don't know, for whatever reason, pardon the pun, but took me under his wing a little bit, and I was like, you should join Air Cadets which I really didn't want to do at the time because I already got made fun of enough. <laughs> I didn't really want to put on a uniform and march around. Um, but I did it, and at first I hated it because I had to put my hair up in a bun, and I, I polished my boots and all this stuff.
1: What squadron?
2: Uh, Eight Five Nine 5 crows Nest. So, um, and they're still going a little squadron down in southern Alberta. But uh, I I, my, I didn't want to stay. I told my mom, I was like, I want to quit. This is too hard. She says, nope, you signed up for this. You know, stick to it. You know, you, you signed up at least a year, and then we'll see from there. But it didn't take long until I started, like, making friends and actually getting good at polishing my boots and putting my hair up in a bun. And and I started to really like it. And uh, at the end of the year, uh, the fighter pilot that I was talking about, his call sign is Midas. And uh, he brought an F-18 down to Lethbridge. What's his real name? Uh, Lee. Robert, I guess. Vogan.
1: Okay. I don't
2: know. uh, Yeah, he's retired now and everything. But nonetheless, he... uh, He brought this jet down, and we got to go and see it. And and I got invited to go early. Some of us from like the the neighborhood. Uh, And he said, "So I come sit in the cockpit." And I was too chicken. I wouldn't do it. I was just like, "I'll scuff my boots," or made up some stupid excuse. Let fear get in the way. Um, And we walked on the plane. It was cool. And then the squadron showed up, and they did it again. And it was time for him to go. He'd been there for like I don't know two hours with all these kids, just like you know over the moon above this airplane. He says, well, if you want, you guys can stand out here on the ramp, um, the, kind of the main area there right in front of the hangar. He says, and I'm going to fire it up, taxi, and then when I, I'm going to take off over top of you guys, and I'll rock my wings, and I'll wave as we go. And so we all thought, like, this is this is neat. And so he fired up the jet, and everybody, like, instantly, hands over their ears, super loud. But me, I was just like, this is cool. And I, I literally had that moment where it was like somebody hit me over the head and said, this is it. You have to fly. So I still remember everything from that day. I remember the wind. I remember the sky. I remember all those cheesy things. Um, and so it was It was a big moment in my life because I finally had a goal. I finally had something I wanted to achieve and, and I wanted to do. And um, the funny thing about that story is I got back on the, the school bus to go back to the pass. And it's about an hour and a half drive. Um, and he called... I guess I just had my first ever flip phone at the time. Um, And I actually think he texted me when he got home, and it was less than 20 minutes. So he flew from Lethbridge to Cold Lake in less than 20 minutes. And I'd like, we weren't even out of the city of Lethbridge yet at this point. I was like, man, this is going to be so cool how much faster I could go. And I just, I really wanted to be military. Uh, But of course, uh, things happened, and along the way, that's not what happened. I, I continued in air cadets and I, I did quite well and I really loved it. But when I went to apply for the military, um, I showed up for the interview and I thought it was just the interview, but I had to do an aptitude test and I'd never done one before. Um, and I, I, I had a bit of test anxiety as well and I, I failed it. They said, sorry, you, you don't have the aptitude to be in the military. So I, I said, crap, I must be really dumb. Like I just, huge confidence blow. But uh, for whatever reason, I applied uh, to another post-secondary I thought I'll go get a university degree. And then reapply to the military. That that should work, right? No, I didn't get in again. So I'm really starting... At that point, I was really starting to think I was pretty dumb. But uh, luckily, I applied again to uh, Mount Royal this time. And uh, I got in, thank God. Finally, general studies. So I figured I'll figure something out and take some classes, see what I like. And I don't know, go from there. Because I had no idea how civilian pilots became pilots. I thought it was military or bust. Like, that was the only thing I knew. So uh, I was at Mount Royal, and I was... I don't know, probably halfway through my first semester. And by chance, one day, the main courtyard was busy. So I decided to go through the Bizet School of Business and I went up a floor and on the second floor, there's this room and it's all windows. And inside of it was a flight simulator. And I did the like, how would you, you have to What the heck is this? And I went into the office and I said, why why is, what is this? And she said, oh, there's an aviation program. And so I, uh, I applied and luckily got in and started my private pilot license like the next day out of the uh, Spring Airport and got into the aviation program and all my credits and stuff from that first year counted and got through that program and did my, uh, my instructor training shortly after and really loved instructing and, and the power of, of teaching, especially if you get good at it. And uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it all started.
1: And where did you do your instructor writing?
2: So I did my instructor at the Calgary Flying Club uh, with Gladys Bowditch, uh, who's still instructing, flying all over the place, and Dina Wiebe, Deanna Weeb, sorry, and she's actually the Dean of the Mount Royal Aviation Program now, and a couple of really strong powerhouse women out there that were really encouraging and just you know, believed in me when I maybe didn't believe in myself sometimes. And so from the instructor, I worked at the Calgary Flying Club for a year, uh, was a class four? Yeah, class four, brand new instructor. Teaching
1: takeoffs and landings?
2: Oh yeah, <laughs> All those fun things. Um, and it, you know, it was it was a huge learning experience because you 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 if you it's like they say that, you know you have to really be able to understand something to teach it. And so I learned a lot about flying. I learned a lot about being confident and being able to take control of the airplane uh, when <laughs> you know something's going wrong. So it was, I, and I started really liking it. I liked the people I worked with; were really fun, and I you know I met a ton of of really awesome people. They're still friends to this day. That's one of my favorite things about this industry is that you meet somebody and it's like, oh, I'll know you for the rest of my life, pretty much. Uh, the After about a year, I actually moved up to Edmonton uh, for personal reasons, and the uh, Edmonton Flying Club was hiring. I knew somebody that had worked here, and I got on, and the rest uh, continued from there. So
1: yeah. Interesting.
2: So that was 2009 I moved up, so I've been instructing since 2008, so a long time.
1: Oh, yeah. 11 years now.
2: 11 years, yeah.
1: Yeah, you got here just before I did, I think. Yeah. Just before I finished my license. Yeah. Or around the same time, I think.
2: Something like that. Yeah, I remember you being around the club and stuff, so. Yeah,
1: that was a long time ago.
2: Yeah. <laughs> time flies when you're having fun, right? Yeah. Yeah,
1: well, that was like 10 years ago?
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Man, I'm getting old. <laughs> I found my first gray hair the other day. Oh, dear. This is the
2: best thing about being blonde. <laughs> they just all of a sudden, I'll have white hair, and then I'll just be done with
1: it. Yeah, really. But so i guess the next question then is um most most listeners that don't know how to fly probably have no contacts yeah what do you recommend like what's the best way to get into aviation if they decide that's what they want to do
2: well it depends on what area of aviation i mean that's one of the other things that so many people have no idea about is that the aviation world is huge like you could literally name almost any career out there and you could do it within aviation uh, I met an aviation lawyer the other day. I have a, a flight nurse that's a part of the Elevate Aviation Inspire program. Yeah. Uh, there's DGC, air traffic control, else. ramp agents, you know, flight attendant, pilot, mm, fairly common. At least people know that they exist, yeah. but there's so many. Um, so the best thing I always say is, like, go, go hang out at an airport, right, if you can. Even the little ones, there's so many little airports around the Edmonton area that you can just go and check out and watch some airplanes and go and talk to all the different flight schools. There's five in Edmonton. Uh, and you can quite literally just go and show up and say, hey, um, how does this work?
1: Can I wash the belly? <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. That, that's the one I
1: recommend for kids.
2: That's awesome. Uh, we've never had a kid come in and wash anything because they don't really think they want to. But come in and sit in the airplane and you know move the flight controls. I was uh, over at North Caribou this morning. We had a grade 6 class come in. Uh, And they, we just played around in the airport, right? So we had them go through maintenance and learn about that. We had them do a full drill on the 1900 of evacuating with the flight attendant team. Uh, We got them all sitting in the cockpit, moving the flight controls and seeing, remembering that grade six science. I don't know how many people remember that of, you know, the four forces of flight and the flight controls and how do they work and just like actually seeing it. um, I know the aviation museum has a huge program with that too. They have grade sixes come through because it's part of the curriculum, but it's just that being around it is, and asking questions and talking to people that are in it because that's always the joke, right? Like, who loves to talk about their jobs more than pilots? I don't know. <laughs> like, there's not very many. True. I, they, it's true. It's the chitter-chatter about it and there's such a jargon and the passion behind it. So,
1: yeah. so, so you probably know most about the, the actual flying aviation pilot side of things. Yeah. So do you agree that there's two. probably two streams in, in flying? There's kind of like the sport aviation side of things? And then there's the career airline side of things.
2: Yeah, either sport or just general, like people learning to fly for fun and and whatnot and enjoying it. Career-wise, even that I think you could break apart because a lot of people assume if you're going to be a career pilot, you're going to be an airline pilot.
1: You could crop dust.
2: You could crop, yeah, you could Croc fly dust. Instruct, you can fly Pipeline. Everybody sees those little airplanes flying all over the city and all over the place. You get paid to look out the window at 500 feet. Like, really? It's like a pretty sweet life to me. Uh, Medivac's a huge one. Firefighting. Charter. Corporate. There, there's just so many. Um, but it's, I would, yeah, if, I guess for the, if you really generalized it, that would that would make sense.
1: So probably, probably the majority of people would be interested in flying airlines probably because there's the most of those jobs out there
2: potentially i think that's also just what people know yeah right they uh, and a lot of people maybe come in the door initially thinking i'm going to be an airline pilot and then find the cooler spot or place that they love or their fit along the way like i was never going to be an airline pilot i want to be a fighter pilot and that didn't end up happening but i i found you know i like instructing and i also like flying like i fly contracts and i really love that so you know there's you never know what path you'll end up at the end of it
1: so, so say I want say say I was seventeen, yep. and I was interested in flying WestJet, which is what most people know and what most kids yep. that want to become pilots want to do. I'm guessing. Yeah, what's the what's the path look like? So where would I start?
2: So you quite literally start by going into a flight school and asking any flight
1: school or a specific kind
2: you could go to any flight school that does fixed wing which is most of them um unless you want helicopter uh synergy aviation is a fantastic helicopter school in the edmonton area and then of course like obviously i'm biased because i work the edmonton flying club and we've been around since 1927 so uh we're tried and true but there's also great schools like nameo flying club centennial uh cooking lake aviation freedom aviation or freedom air uh, out of cooking lake so there's lots of options and the best thing to do is you know Nowadays I guess you could also do some research, right? Spend some time on the Google and looking up flight schools, looking up those different schools websites and then go and see them, right? Go for a tour, go meet the instructing team and the dispatch team if they have one. Uh, check out the airplanes, go and sit in them, touch them. Uh, you'll see a huge difference in you know types of fleet, how well they're maintained, that sort of thing. And just to get a general vibe for a school. So you're gonna be spending a lot of money because learning how to fly is not cheap. You're looking at $60,000 if you wanna go into a career as a pilot. Yeah, or commercial
1: more. right to the yeah. end of multi-FR and everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So if you, you know, start to finish your 60 to 80,000 some college programs are asking for 100 to 150,000 programs uh, thousand now. Uh, so you know, it's it's not cheap by any means of the exaggeration, but it's a huge investment so you know you want to you want to be at a place that you you like and you feel comfortable and you think is you know fits who you are as well from that um, book a discovery flight or two right if they you're between two schools do a discovery flight at each school uh, and go from there uh, from that you'll talk to an instructor and they'll you know or dispatch staff and they'll explain okay so you start off uh, most schools right now you have to go right into ground school and you can't really start right on the flight line necessarily right away there's this huge, it's finally gotten out that there's a pilot shortage. Yeah. So, for instance, we used to be able to get you flying within probably two weeks easy. Now we're looking at six months plus because of how many people have been signing up, which is awesome, but it's hard to keep up with the demand. But not awesome if you're a student. Exactly. So it is It is a little tough. Some of the schools have less of a wait list. Some schools aren't even taking people. Um, Calgary Flying Club, last I talked to them, they were saying they, they're telling people a two-year wait to start i know i know um but it's also because there's a shortage of instructors so it used to be that you know you would finish your commercial license get your instructor rating, instruct for a little while maybe a couple years and then look at a different position go you know maybe do some medevac or some low charter and then maybe go to the airlines versus now people are going to the airlines at a thousand hours so you can go and work for a pipeline company for a year Get your 1,000 hours, maybe a year and a half, yeah, and then you go Russia. straight to Encore or Jazz. So if, if that's what you want, it's that part of it is fantastic in lots of ways. Some people are going, oh, my God, that sounds terrifying. Um, and, you know, the safety programs and the training programs have gotten a lot better. Yeah. But it is a little nerve-wracking too, right? It's, it's change, it's different, and that's that takes getting used to, and I'm sure there will be some hiccups along the way. But for perspective of getting in, it's fantastic right now.
1: Wow, you're in a pretty good spot then as a flying school. So if somebody wanted to start a flying school, you'd have students right away.
2: Mm, yeah. <laughs> I You know, it's starting a flying school is a lot more difficult than... You with know, the
1: paperwork side of things
2: yeah, yeah between the paperwork and the regulations and the safety side of things yeah. plus getting instructors is almost impossible right now so we you know we're doing our own obviously our the people that we bring in are people that are either already club members or are students from around the edmonton area that yeah. at their school there's no class one because you have to have a class one to teach you and there's only i think four or five of us in the whole area so we're pumping them out as fast as we can but To create, to become an instructor, you have to create your entire, all your lesson plans on the private pilot license. So, and then you have to teach them on the ground and in the air. So... For your rating. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. I get to play the bad student as the class one, so I love it, but it's, it's a lot of work, especially to be a good instructor and... I'm a big pusher of making sure that you're, you're getting you're, that theory and that understanding of how and why is in there, and you're not just pushing procedure. Because if you just push procedure, you're going to take longer to get to solo, I can almost guarantee it. You're also going to not really understand why the airplane's doing what it's doing, and it's going to cause you issues later in training if it doesn't right off the get-go. So we're really big on making sure that you understand like the basics of what the four forces are doing on every lesson. Right. So it's, it's that thought of, you know, if you can okay. Well, why, why? When I did this, why was it wrong? You think, okay, well, the airplane's doing this, and this is what's happening with lift and weight and drag and thrust. Oh, yeah. So I should do it this way. So it's that being able to help people understand how to think like a pilot as well, which is a big part of, of how we train.
1: What's causing the shortage of instructors?
2: So partly because of the whole process of you know, you can go a thousand hours at pipeline company and go to the airlines. So people are thinking, oh, I don't have to instruct. Right. In one way, which is great because. There's definitely been the instructors out there that shouldn't have been instructors. But it's only a
1: stepping stone, right?
2: It, and that's what people have thought, right? And it's not necessarily true or necessarily how we should think about it in the industry. It's kind of backwards that way, that it's a stepping stone when we're teaching the future. Like, Yeah, you should want to do it. Yeah. You not do you, it because you have to. Exactly. And so there's a lot of people doing it just for the hours and poor people that they taught, you know, were kind of, you know, didn't, there was no benefit there.
1: Yeah, get a less than energetic flight instructor.
2: Yeah, um, or the Who guy looking out it. his window that doesn't care. It's like, hurry up, let's fly, and, you know, or doesn't make the effort. And not that many were like that, but, you know, there have been some. Uh, so finding instructors that want to teach you what you're getting now, which is awesome. And they're wanting to do that. They're wanting to try to be instructors and planning to stick around maybe for a year or two or three and, and hone their craft or maybe even more. Some people are starting to look at it as a potential career. And that might be a possibility if we can make the funding for our work, because that's been a big part of why instructing is not necessarily considered career worthy or for a long time is because it, it's not it doesn't pay well. Yeah. As much as it's how expensive flight instruction is, it's not going to the instructors. It's going to the aircraft and the maintenance and the hangarage and all of these other things. So. Um, instructing-wise can be a bit tough that way.
1: How's it work? Do you get paid by the hour? Does yeah. A flight hour it de- or is it hour here?
2: It depends on the school. Uh, EFC, we do, like, flight hour and ground hour, and as well as if they do any additional work or they're working in ground school or they're going to career fairs, we pay them. Um, but some schools will just do it based on flight hour, which is where that danger of no ground, get in the airplane, let's go, comes into play and you're running into trouble with understanding how things work. But um, there's, I think, The only school I can think of off the top of my head that does salary that I know of anyways is uh, Fort McMurray Aviation, but they also have, their instructors also do some stuff with the Grand Caravans, and they also do dispatch and ramp, so they're paid to be there five days a week kind of a thing anyways, um, or however their schedule works, I don't know, but, so, salary is hard for schools to do, uh, and, and, it's just, again, because of the cost because the planes aren't making money unless they're flying no. or with students. So students
1: end up paying for the, the salaried instructor anyways through a higher exactly. cost, a higher hourly rate on the, yeah. on the yeah. airplane. You got it. So that, that's a good thing that, that a new person should look for at a, at a school or at least be aware of. Yeah. What else should a new person look for when they show up for their, their introduction or their walkthrough?
2: You know, the general atmosphere, uh, is it a positive one, is it, uh, does everybody seem like they're in a good mood and having a good time, slash, um, do you feel safe and comfortable around it? The other thing I always like to look for, and I've been to multiple different schools myself when I was training um, a little bit, as well as like as looking for different jobs as instructors, and you know, Does the team work together? So, is there on-site maintenance? That's a huge perk because then, when you have a question about something that's broken or whatnot, can you actually go and talk to a mechanic? Will you be able to, to to see what 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 does the airplane look like when the engine cowling's not on and and actually you know physically visually see all that stuff is is big. Not to say a good school doesn't have their own inside like on on-site maintenance, but that can be a huge perk. Uh, the condition of the aircraft: Are they clean? Are they stinky? stinky are they covered in mud or is there a bunch of garbage in the airplanes that kind of shows you the general condition of what that school and how much they take care of their airplanes are um, not to say that they have to be brand new because airplanes are so well maintained that you might be learning how to fly in on a 1973 Cessna and that's okay as long as you know you can see it's been taken care of. Uh, other things would be just ask the questions and if the people that you're talking to can, can answer them or will be like, you know what? I don't know. Let me ask, you know, this person or that person. And um, if you can like if they can let you sit in the airplane, if they give you a tour, if they're open to give you a tour, if they have information to give you and they want you to be there. Um, even though there's a, this busyness of, of schools, they should still want you to be there. So
1: is, um, is rate hourly rate important? So obviously if a school spends more money on maintenance then it'll show up in the hourly rate as well, right? Yeah. Is that something that, that a new student should be concerned about? Should they be going to the cheapest one or the most expensive one, or how does that factor in?
2: That's a really good question. That's that's tough. Uh, the big thing with the, the cost may have to do with the, the the year of the fleet. So, for example, in Edmonton, we're one of the more expensive schools at EFC because our fleet is the oldest airplane in our entire fleet is 2000 um, Some of our airplanes are 2014, 2016. So you're still paying them off? Well, we've paid them off, but the depreciation on them and such like that, um, plus, and some of them, you know, it is that the upkeep of them is more expensive because they've got fancier technologies yeah, and like G Yeah, So and all
0: them, yeah. Yeah.
2: So, autopilots. Well, we, we've taken the autopilots out of a couple of them just to try and reduce costs because we don't need them at all for basic training, right? After the IFR trainers, they're there, of course, but... Uh, so the cost is there's that there's also the facility right so we have a pretty new facility here and we rent it and so that's I you know, can't remember how much a month but quite a lot um, plus you have full time staff on board so there's myself there's we have two uh, well one one full time and one part time uh, AME plus contractors that'll come in so if something does get damaged we'll bring in the contractors to try and get that plane back on the flight line soon so then get maintenance costs uh, the fact that we have you know dispatch we have full service team of dispatch that are going to help you. Do they with, fuel it too? They do help with fueling. Yeah, they'll typically do the fueling. We do still teach all of our students how to fuel and yeah, things so like that. Yeah, countries. Yeah, but they're not having, it saves them time so they have more time with their instructor instead of pulling the airplanes around themselves and fueling the airplanes themselves. Yeah, ding um, and wingtips. Ding and wingtips. You got it, right? <laughs> so they're, they're a little bit more trained that way. So again, that staff is there and they're also there to help you. Like when you're like, I don't remember what this is. Like,
1: yeah, do I need the winter you. kit?
2: Yeah, all those things. And they're all pilots too and it's great for them. and get good experience there's always, always that opportunity with a, a club like ours too is to work dispatch and, and learn from that side of things too so.
1: so i guess the summary is you kind of get what you pay for yeah. so if you, if you want to pay less you get less service for it yes is, is that fair to say yeah. Instructor
2: for the most part um yeah as well as like the, the age of the fleet is going to change the price, right? If they've paid off their aircraft and they're not depreciating, then the cost of the airplane is going to be cheaper uh, versus a brand new plane. It's just like getting a brand new car, right? Yeah. Same sort of thing. But the maintenance on those old planes sometimes can be just as expensive and bigger things needed, like a whole new engine or, you know, and all this and so on and so forth. Yeah, so new
1: wings so or whatever.
2: If, yeah, whatever it might be. So... That can be a big part of it. The other thing to consider is, like I said, the atmosphere is really important. Um, How you feel at that school, big deal, because you're going to be spending a lot of time there and a lot of money there. So, you know, it's it's an investment, whether you spend, you know, if it's $60,000 at EFC and $54,000 at a different school, six grand, the big grand scheme of things, you know, what's your budget? I don't know. Um, is it that you end up, you know, spending all, more at one school, but then you go to another school and you struggle because it's very procedurally based and you're not doing great and you, you don't really like being there and you're nervous because you don't like your instructor or whatever it might be. And now you're adding all these extra hours. Well, now the cost is same anyways. So, you know, it's, it's so hard to say, you know, based on money wise, what's best. So, as much as I know, it's hard to. I recommend people try to not think of the exact cost necessarily all of the time. Yeah. Um, but what?
1: But a lot of seventeen-year-olds are sensitive to that, right? So that's, I, the first that's thing totally that comes fair. To that's the first thing they notice.
2: Absolutely, absolutely, it is a big deal. Um, and the thing is, is the private pilot license—you can't get a student loan for it. Some places you can not get a bank loan or a line of credit for it. Uh, RRSPs can be utilized if your parents are really nice. What's the um, budget
1: <laughs> price for the private? At say this school, the minimum the cost average.
2: is about thirteen thousand five hundred. Most people are about fifteen to twenty.
1: And like hour wise, what does that translate to? What's the minimum? Minimum like is
2: forty five hours of flying. Right. Um, so,
1: are you saying getting your license at forty five or getting your license more like sixty?
2: Yeah. So the yeah. license closer to sixty, sometimes seventy. The national average is between you know about seventy to eighty, depending on the province. Some provinces are, are or territories are lower, or higher than others. But for the most part, seventy is pretty much the the fairly regular standard across the country. Um, but like I said there's some programs like we have our accelerated program where we partner students up and we've had those guys finish in like 50 55 hours. Um so that's been, you know, great, but it just depends on if your schedule can allow for that and you've got the work ethic too. So you
1: said it was like 15,000 on average or so for Yeah, 15
2: to 20,000. At this school? Yeah.
1: So then the next step after that would be commercial, right?
2: Well, to get to the commercial, there's things in between. So typically, people will do the night rating, uh, and that's – we don't usually do them in the summer in Edmonton. Cause and that counts like, towards your commercial too, yes, right? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So it's about a 10-hour rating, 10 to 12 hours, and it's super fun. You just learn how to fly at night, land at night, take off at night, and a it's little bit more. Is it $2,000? Probably closer to $5,000 when you're all set and done. Right. And just because of the like, – so it's 10 hours – or five hours of dual and five hours is so, low, so. Oh, yeah, because uh, just for the the time, and then you sign off the license, and when you go, there's no test on that one. There is on the private pilot license, a written and a flight test. So after you've done the night rating or, you know, you could be building time at that point too, taking your friends to wherever and you can- To
1: get towards the 200 for the commercial. Yes, you need a
2: total of 200 for the commercial. How you get there is up to you. You could then do, you know, get your multi-engine in there. You could get your multi-instrument rating or your single instrument rating in there. You could just be flying around building time and experience, get your commercial single and then go get a single job on a single engine aircraft. And then later, once you have some experience, go get your multi-multi IFR and I guarantee you, it'll take you less time and less money to do it later.
1: Because you have way more hours too.
2: And- experience confidence yeah. all of those things but is that what you does that work with your life plan does that work with your first job plan it, it's it's very it varies person to person
1: so then so now i'll, I'll be like I don't know, 19 years old say mm-hmm. uh, i've got my private license i've got my commercial license or no i've got my night and say maybe multi-ifr as well mm-hmm. what's the cost for that multi-ifr
2: well, Cifr is, the multi is about, they're both about 10, 10 to 15. Each mm-hmm. or combined? Each. Okay. Yeah. So again, the multi-engine, there's no minimum time on it. Lower time pilots, though, are going to take longer to get right. comfortable in the aircraft. Way more systems. Yeah. So maybe they're a 12 to 15 hour multi-engine student versus a thousand hour pilots at a seven or eight hour multi-engine. License. And the
1: multi-airplanes are a lot more expensive.
2: Yes. Yeah. They're like four to 500 bucks an hour yeah yeah they're a lot uh two engines more gas (laughs) newer all these other things it's also it's a 2016 hyper Seminole, so it's gorgeous but it also is the like our simulator can basically be the exact same as it so that helps keep the cost down here at EFC instead of learning one system in the sim getting really good at that procedural wise because IFR is fairly procedural and then jumping into the plane and it being really different Uh, we're lucky that our sim is very similar to the airplane so that you get used to the systems you get used to where the buttons are and the knobs are and how it all works It's the so, same when you get an airplane yeah or
1: close so, so how, do,
0: how does fun. the uh, how does that apply for uh, for time wise can you apply simulator time towards an actual uh...
2: some of it yeah so you can count uh, different sim like for the IFR you can count 20 hours of simulator time towards the total of 40 that's needed for the commercial you need 25 hours and you can count 10 from this flight simulator and, and most people will take advantage of that I'm guessing everybody would most of the time yeah we definitely do with most of our students at least somewhere along the way maybe not at the private level but for sure at the commercial level because I mean 25 hours of instrument work that's where you're not looking out the window you're stirring your instruments and learning how to fly that way is a long time. Yeah. Um, so if we can do some stuff in the sim with, you know, different situations and failures and all of that where it's totally safe, you know, that's a huge benefit not only to your safety as a pilot but also just your general time. And, and the sim's like, I don't know, 135, 140 an hour. So it's, uh, it's quite a bit cheaper than the airplane as well.
1: So so then it'd be like 140 hours or so maybe with mm. no commercial but it'd have multi-FR,
2: night rating, and a private Typically, you'll have to do a little bit of training before you start the multi. Um, Most, I don't know about all schools, but we typically want you to be at about 150 hours before you touch the twin, just because, again, that... It, you get behind the airplane yeah. real quick uh, and then again you're kind of wasting a bit more of your money we don't want you to know, have to spend a, you don't want a 20 hour multi-engine reading right because you're struggling to fly the darn thing so get, get a little bit of confidence get a little experience enjoy flying your friends and family and you can get a bunch you can get like 20-30 hours in a month no problem uh, especially in the summertime or spring when you fly fairly regularly and uh, then you get that a little bit more confidence and jump into the twin so usually it's that you know you do 20-30 to 30 hours at least of time building. Building, and then maybe start thinking about doing a multi multi IFR um, or like I said you could just do the time building you don't have to do the multi IFR um, to be a part of the commercial you could do it afterwards too so if that's the case maybe you're doing mountain checks so going to learn how to fly in the mountains because it's a little bit different it's not an actual rating but almost every school will have that you have to go and get checked out but on it's the an autopilot. insurance
1: requirement right
2: yeah so between insurance and just general safety um, of making sure that the airplanes are gonna be good and in, in really different weather in the mountains
1: yeah not uh, hit ridges and stuff.
2: Exactly, yeah. And it, I mean, it's a lot of fun. Like if you've ever been to the mountains and in general, it's gorgeous there. So now imagine it from above, and it's just the best view ever. Um,
1: Expensive to get there, though, from oh, here. A
2: little bit, yeah. It's about an hour and a half to get to the rocks from here. But uh, we'll typically pair, pair up two students, so... You know, one will fly it to, you know, we'll go to either Valmont or we'll go down to Golden and one will fly there, switch seats, and then somebody else will fly back. So you kind of split the cost and make it so it's worthwhile. We're looking at going to, like, the Fairmont Fly-In and stuff like that, too. So you make an adventure.
1: Yeah, make Mm -hmm. it fun. Mm -hmm. Make it worthwhile.
2: And then those kind of things are, are great. We've had students take the airplanes down to the States. Right, for a couple of days, and you can build like 25, 30 hours in, in a week. when yeah, you're one doing Something like that, right? Um, and gain a ton of experience. I and mean, getting to fly across borders is really good, too.
1: Yeah, slightly different rules down there, too. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. And the
2: border crossing is a little bit unique and a bit of a pain paperwork-wise and such, but it's yeah. really good to learn.
1: Slightly different culture down there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm then is, is the last thing then the commercial um, part of the, the training?
2: Yeah, so the commercial run uh, is typically, you know, 20 hours, maybe, uh, of really... Between dual and solo, I mean, you have to you have to have 30 hours of dual, but some of that 10, 15 hours could be from your mountain checkout and maybe from your night oh, yeah. And so then the, it really for the push to the flight test, you have to have the commercial written done first, mind you. But the push for the, the flight test is really about honing your skills, right? It's very similar test to the private, but we want to see perfection. So I'm a flight test examiner as well. And so on the private, you think about it, you know, you have plus or minus 200 feet plus or minus 10 degrees 10 knots of airspeed on the com- 200 feet yeah on the commercial we're looking for 100 feet right like we're it's yeah. it's pushing those skills as well as there's a few other exercises that are tested on the commercial that weren't tested on the on the private such as the power off one, uh, 180 which is the engine failure from the downwind so you yeah. have to be able to do a precision landing like that um you have to do the spin uh, and uh, you know enter and get out of the spin yeah on the, the, the private
1: in canada is they enter it you exit it right
2: other way You're around.
1: Other you You enter it, they exit?
2: Yeah. yeah. The, wait, wait. They have to be able to get out of a spin.
1: I think we confused you and they. So I think the instructor. Oh, yeah. Are, yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. that's the probably student it. exits it, yeah. right? Yeah. And then commercial, the student does it all. Oh, I forgot about that. Totally. Yeah,
2: yeah. So, and I mean, that's a big thing in Canada, right? The states doesn't even do that, um, and you can see it in their stats of light airplane accidents. Oh yeah. Because a lot of people people, are afraid of that. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, I'm really glad that we do the spin training up here. It can be fun doing four bookings back to back of it. I don't necessarily like on a hot summer day. Yeah. But uh, you get sick. Well, after that many times, yeah. But I mean, it's it's. It's there. It's good to know what they are and to be able to recognize them and know that you can get out of them versus just being afraid of them.
1: I will bet students find that challenging or or um, nerve wracking getting into that lesson.
2: It depends. It's a
1: different. Very Some different are like
2: pumped that are like you and want to be exercise. like aerobatics and like this is cool and love roller coasters and stuff. Others Some are like terrified. Yes. Yeah, and that's very much an instructor art right there to, like, okay, let's let's go yeah. through it. Why is this happening? You're going to be looking at the ground. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's a lot of prep that can go into it with a student that's nervous, and, and that's how it should be, right?
1: What do you find between the private and the commercial level? What do you find is challenging to teach? What's the hard? What do people always fail to flight test on?
2: Uh, P-180 is a big one. Oh, on the private let's lesson, the forced approach can be a big one. Yeah. Uh, the steep turn sometimes people get really uncoordinated on and just get lost you know they start chasing instruments instead of looking out the window and then oh really oh yeah
1: like what do you like skid the turn
2: yep yeah not enough or too much rudder uh, especially in the because in the entry you need a bit but then you don't need as much once you're established and so people don't think about that and they oh, really hold bad? the rudder or they don't put it in and then they're like oh i'm out and then they kick a bunch of rudder so it can be a little bit tricky uh yeah the force approach is, is one right altitude paying attention that collision geometry being able to figure out that depth perception where am i where am i going if i'm high i have to do something about it versus yeah or low you have to
1: do something about it yeah both (laughs)
2: cases right but people sometimes just don't so that's that taking control of it and people get nervous on a flight test any kind of test there's always nerves there so for some people there's certain exercises that were a bugaboo of theirs and that might be an issue but those are probably on the ppl i would say Yeah, definitely the the forced approach, and and sometimes the landings, the softer short field landings, are not necessarily great. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's a good way to put it. When you
1: do your your forced approach training, Mm -hmm. do you teach, I know there's two, I think, bow tie and then the 360, right?
2: There's a few, Mm -hmm. there's the 360 and there's the circuit procedure, and the circuit procedure typically encases the bow tie, or you can utilize the bow tie with that. Um, But we typically will teach the circuit procedure just based on the fact that they already know the circuit. They're used to the circuit. And what's Um, the circuit procedure? So that's just more or less you get yourself on a leg of the pattern. So you get yourself, you're either on downwind for the field you've chosen, you're on base, you're on final, you've crossed midfield depending on how high you are for this field, and you make yourself around so that it looks like what you're used to it looking like, to try to take some of that fear out of it, to try and put back that muscle memory of what do I know, as well as then you're not constantly turning. That's uh, so the one thing I personally don't like about the, the the 360 is that you're constantly trying to turn and pay attention to your speed and pay attention to your field and get through a made oh yeah, call so and get, get busy. through so exactly and a lot of the time uncoordinated and airspeed gets lost. I mean, if you've trimmed it out and you've got it settled, they both can be fantastic. Ultimately, on both of them, if you know the aircraft and get it get it nicely trimmed and can you know judge your distance. They're both great. But for initially teaching, the 360 can be tough. And then there's the math in there. And um, I've noticed, especially with this next generation, math is not strong. So, really? Yeah. Like with young st- Yep, It's uh, basic timetables. Not all students, but there's I've noticed it a lot more in, the, in this next generation uh, of students, which is you just have to be patient, right, and, and help them think it through and make it practical. But yeah, there's definitely a weakness there.
1: Let's move to the commercial. So when I did my commercial flight test, I was sweating the Power Off 180.
2: Yeah, most people are.
1: I think that was it. Oh, and I think, don't you have to do some kind of hood work?
2: You do have to do hood, yeah. Is it a
1: steep turn under the hood or something?
2: No, it's a limited panel, so with instruments failed. And then you have to do like time turns and like rated climbs and descents, as well as the unusual attitude with limited panel.
1: Like, what do people, was it just me that struggled with that or is that the common thing?
2: Uh, Oh, and the NavAid, that's the one that really gets people is being able to intercept and track to a NavAid. So the VOR or the EDF, now we're allowed to use GPS now too, so.
1: Yeah, um, that's easy. Yeah, the GPS
2: (laughs) one is super easy, but the VOR one and the EDF people still like will turn themselves around or get struggled. So that one has been a bit of a a tricky one. And and unusual attitudes depends on how much practice you've had with it and how you feel about flying under the hood right so people get really feel really nauseous right away when they're not being able to look out the window so that can be a real challenge Uh, most of us as examiners try to do that closer to the end just in case yeah uh, it does make you feel kind of gross but
1: and then the 180 everyone would struggle with
2: most but most people, yeah. Again, if you've got good collision geometry, and, and the way we teach it is we try to really keep it basic, really simple of just scanning a field and you know seeing if it moves up or moves down on your windscreen and just going to something straight ahead at first and then adding in complications and different altitudes and such from there to try and make it simple and, and not overcomplicate it.
1: Yeah, that's what I find too. Is once you figure out what the site picture is supposed to look like, yeah. how high you're supposed to be, how far from the field, yeah, you can adjust your turn and you get to know And every airplane, well, most airplanes have a similar glide. Yeah. So obviously, like, biplanes you have to be really steep on, but... Yeah. uh, And gliders don't. Yeah. Or a fishing airplane, like diamonds or something. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: But, uh, yeah, that's kind of what I noticed, too, is...
2: Yeah, getting to know your aircraft it's is the same huge, picture. right? Like just the between getting to know the airplane and, and taking some of the stress out of it that all airplanes even though they're all a little bit different, they all fly basically the same, right? Like lift goes up, <laughs> weight goes down, thrust goes forward, yeah. it goes back. Um so the the basics of it once you can kind of take the fear and the stress out of some of it, you get a lot more comfortable in the aircraft, a lot more fluid with it, and it comes a lot easier too.
1: Speaking of different airplanes, Mm -hmm. I noticed that Edmonton Flying Club used to have a purely diamond fleet.
2: No, we used to have everything. We had Cessnas, Cessnas, diamonds, pipers, all kinds of stuff.
1: And then we moved away, or then you moved back to pure Cessnas and sold every diamond, I think.
2: Yeah, we did. Why? Um, when, we, when we renewed the fleet, uh, we kind of looked a little bit at some of the other models of other, you know, very successful companies out there. Uh, and most of them have a standardized fleet, right? So having all Cessna 172s and one Piper maintenance, all the parts, they're the same. Um, the uh, people, everybody fits in a one seventy two. Not everybody fits in a diamond twenty. Yeah, that was a big issue for us. You know, even if you're over, especially if you're over six feet tall in a diamond, you're not very comfortable. So, or if you're over two hundred and ten pounds, you're not very comfortable in a diamond. So there was, you know, there was. The restrictions on that plane that were a little tough for us, I mean, they're great. They're so much fun. Uh, And they were really great if you were smaller and shorter, too, because the pedals would move towards you. So it was just trying to find the aircraft that was the most versatile um, and tried and true. And the Cessna 172 is the number one trainer in North America for a reason. And so for us, it was about standardizing the fleet and keeping it simple for maintenance and for us. Because then too, if you're a diamond pilot and I'm a Cessna pilot and the diamonds are down, well, I can fly, but you can't now. Oh, yeah. Right? So that was always a pain, too. So if one was down, then that so one gets So you segregate your students. You do. And it also made it really tough. Like, it would go in cycles, right? Everybody would want to fly the diamonds because they were, like, sleek and sexy. Yeah. And then the and Cessnas Douglas. would be sitting there. And so the diamonds are booked like crazy. And it's like there's all these other planes. But people you're like, oh, I can't get. I fly the diamond and I can't get in. And you're like, ah, so fly a Cessna then. And vice versa. Versus this way, it's just like everybody flies a Cessna.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it'd probably be way easier to swap between yeah. airplanes. Yeah, if
2: we need to, you know, one's coming up for maintenance and we want to get it in before the end of the week, we can shove everybody in that plane and, you know, time it out so it can go into maintenance before the weekend. So it's it's a lot more practical to the operation as well.
1: So you book your maintenance on the weekends?
2: No, like if, if, if it was good, like trying to get it in before the weekend because oh. the maintenance guys only come in for snags um, or like defects or Unless issues on the weekend, yeah. Yeah, typically they're not. They're Monday to Friday.
1: So. Oh, oh, yeah. You're saying trying to keep it up and running for the weekend. Yeah. yeah. So that they don't have to come in. Exactly. So then booking-wise, for students, what's the best way to book? Like, Should they book like a month in advance or yeah. three times a day, two times a day?
2: Usually, you know, one to two times a day. And if you're going to do twice a day, we say give yourself a two-hour break in the middle because otherwise we find that these the bookings, like if you book a four-hour booking, it turns into this... You know, you only actually fly for 1.3 when you could have done two 1.3 flights. And it's kind of not fair to any of the other students. So we'll do like 8 to 10. And then if you're going to do a double booking, maybe you'll do 1230 to 230 or something like that. Just yeah, that's to what give I used it, to do. Yeah, they, you get your brain a little bit of a break. You can, you know, think get about what you learned. Get some food, you bet. Um, and think about what you're about to learn as well. So it's, it's just a better brain-powering session uh, with their accelerated students those guys are booked in four-hour slots but that's because they'll go they'll have the ground briefing two students with one instructor and then they'll go flying uh, student flying and then one student in the back they'll oh. land and switch so that both students get to see the exercises twice on most flights i mean you can't like on the spin and certain things you obviously can't do that but it just helps reiterate it plus if you're struggling with something or just hearing the radios more hearing your instructor talk about the same sort of thing again it just really helps um, plus you get a built-in study partner well,
1: what a great idea yeah, yeah i love that i have yeah. thought about that
2: no we, I cr- we we created it a couple of years ago and it's been really really successful um our fastest two uh actually both were our top students they're just they're the award wingers award winners for the jack and dorothy uh, melling scholarship this year at the, at the wings banquet june 1st come if you'd like uh and it's they were 90 what was it 95 and 96 percent on their flight tests they killed it, and they were accelerated pair. They did it together, and, and they, they always flew finished together. Yeah, and they finished at I think it was like fifty-two and fifty-three hours or something like that. Wow. They yeah they but they busted their butts. They're also like in training, food for to be doctors, so they were in the like study mode and very intelligent young men. But
0: is that uh, yeah. is that PPL or CPL or both?
2: That's PPL. Uh, we can do the the accelerated is a little harder to do for the CPL uh, unless you're at that push. But again, because of exercises like the spin which you can't do with somebody in the back, uh, oh, due yeah. to the aircraft uh, manufacturing requirements, that it's it's not so much. Night rating you can do, we've done that a little bit. Multi-multi-FR, we've kind of done a bit of those, uh, at least parts of them where, you know, they will maybe two people working on a multi-engine at the same time, they'll sit in the back just to keep getting used to the airplane and vice versa. IFR, same thing, sit in the back watching the other guy do the approaches and then vice versa, they get to see them another day. But the, those ones are usually longer flights, so they're sometimes hard to do back-to-back because they're, you know, a four-hour booking, and then a four-hour booking could be a bit much for somebody for a whole day.
1: How, how does that system work then? Can can somebody be casual in it, or do you have to have a partner and do it full-time here?
2: We do it, it with partners, yeah. it's Casual it doesn't really work uh, just because you're not in the same spots and you can't you really oh, keep yeah. track you of gotta it. you got to coordinate
1: three people instead of two. Yeah,
2: so if you're... If, if you're going to go in the accelerator program, we want to see a minimum of four days a week that you can be here and uh, with a partner that, yeah, I mean, we're going to introduce you to the person that has the same availability before you start just to make sure you click. Yeah. And, you know, we've had some that we'll, we'll meet and they're like, yeah, this isn't going to work, fine. We meet them, introduce them to somebody else and, hey, this is perfect. Like we have uh, two sets of girls right now. So two females um, are training with an instructor and then two other girls with another instructor. So it's really cool to see, like, there's there's a lot of girls at the flying club right now, which is wicked because as you may know, like six percent is how Fair. many pilots are are female in North America. So it's not a lot. So we're working on changing that <laughs> at EFC. But yeah, so they're you know, they work really well together. They're both young. Um, we've had a couple other partnerships where they've been you know both you know mid to late 30s and that was really good because they think the same right so age uh can can be a little bit tough we've also had a partnership that worked really good where they had 15 years between them so you know it it varies on the individual but we do try to introduce and let you guys make you know the students make their own decision you
1: play matchmaker yeah a little
2: bit (laughs) and then you
1: send them both on their commercial cross country
2: yeah one out one back yeah and a lot of them become friends and partners that way in flying right and like through the commercial ground school and the private ground school and just being around the club you meet other pilots so when you're doing that time building yeah it's like okay let's take a plane and let's go to Jasper for the weekend or let's go down to the states to Seattle for the weekend or for a couple of days or a week and you'll fly we'll split up the legs maybe three of you them go Uh, we've had all kinds of fun adventures like that and really good friendships that that build and because aviation is so small those friendships you know down the road might help get that best job or that promotion or whatever else because somebody says oh hey we're hiring at this place throw a resume in or give it to the chief pilot
1: i find aviation really helps me in engineering Mm -hmm. huge so let's talk a little bit let's change subject a bit let's talk about another model of training that probably happens a lot less frequently which is uh, a student that decides to buy their own airplane how does that work and do you recommend it what are the challenges Ooh. let's um, start with how it works like do you see a lot of that
2: not not a lot uh we do have a few members here that have their own planes most of them have gotten them after they're done their private pilot license so they learn you know on this, the airplanes here so that then they when they have their own plane they actually at least know how to fly it for the most and part bend that. it yeah exactly uh and then they'll start doing their commercial time building or their night rating on their own plane we've got quite a few that have done that hanger their planes out here over at Villeneuve or Cooking Lake or wherever, and uh, and that and that works, you know, because then they can take the plane out when they when they want and they're licensed and their time still counts. Uh, there for the private, we don't see it very often, but it it can be a challenge for schools to take that on because then they're giving their instructor who could be flying their planes to fly your plane. So we're still going to charge for the instructor and for the insurance to cover the instructor, right? But the club ultimately or the school ultimately wouldn't make as much off of that so because
1: they don't make the profit off the airplane
2: exactly and the planes aren't flying potentially or they instru- because the instructors not there to f- and that student aren't flying it right so depending on the need right now I don't think it'd be a huge deal but uh, still uh, most of those people that get their own airplanes will have to find a freelance instructor which are few and far between, especially now with this shortage. But there are a couple kicking around that will do the odd, you know, freelance thing. Uh, they have to be a class three or higher. So instructors are four, three, two, and one. Uh, class fours have to be supervised by a one or a two. Threes can freelance on their own and, you know, do whatever they want more or less. And what's the between two, and one, one then? Class two, you can start supervising those brand new class three and fours. You're also a senior instructor at that point. You're better at theory. You've had been tested on theory of flight a lot heavier and you can help people when they're struggling so when that new class four comes to a class two and says hey I can't my student can't figure out how to land and I don't know what I'm doing wrong that class two can talk to the instructor as well as the student and try to figure okay what's what's wrong here what are we missing work with the instructor to help them get better and work with the student to help them go solo kind of a thing Uh, a class one instructor can teach instructors how to be instructors
1: oh so you can get instructor ratings yeah yeah and then after that, the only thing left to do is the examiner, right?
2: Mm, but I guess for the most part, I mean, depending on there's different types of instructor too. There's aerobatic instructors out there and such too that you can you can get into. But as a class one, typically that's where where if you're going to continue at a school, you'd move into examining. Yeah. Do
1: you find um, Do you find that the the structure that you that we've just talked about is similar in the U.S. or is it completely no, different? It's
2: garbage in the U.S. To what? be Frank? Uh, because you don't actually to get an instructor rating, you don't actually have to hang out with a senior instructor you just have to hang out with a different instructor that has an instructor rating so it's not a full really? course yeah it's really it's bizarre to me how it all works i don't know all the details of it but that's how yeah. it's you know how it's no how i've had it explained to me is that until you're at the multi-engine and multi-instrument rating then you have to do a full like an, a rating you have to pass some tests to become a multi multi-ifr instructor but yeah, there's not very much, there's a bit of training, but very informal compared to the Canadian system. Very informal.
1: And it works better here?
2: Uh, I think so. I feel so. I mean, I think what Canadian pilots are known around the world for being good pilots and and better trained than most places in the world. So I, you know, that's just my opinion, but yes. (laughs)
1: Let's talk about uh, while we're on the subject of international training, mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about international students. Yes, there's do lots you, of them. Do you find that, uh, so I know in central Alberta, there's a, an issue with that right now with English language proficiency.
2: It's getting better. I'm, I'm also a designated yet. English examiner, <laughs> so we have changed the program for the English examining. There's,
1: you did or the government did? Uh,
2: the government did. Uh, there used to be, within the last uh, last year, it's coming up on a year, June it changed uh so it, there used to be all kinds of english examiners all over the place now there's i think Less than 50 of us across the country. And so we've been trained specifically in in doing this, and the testing is different than it used to be. And it also all gets double checked by Transport Canada now. So it used to be that, you know, we'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, it's fine, whatever, and move on, and the English exam would go as it would. Uh, But now TC actually has to listen to it, so the exam gets recorded. It's a conversation, so they can't study for it per se, because there's no, I don't have to ask certain questions. I can ask about what you had for lunch. I can talk to you about anything, yeah. So most, all the conversations are are different. There's none that, that are the same. And we ask a lot of developmental questions. So most of the examiners are class one and two senior instructors. And we ask those, well, how and why? And, you know, how do you feel about that? Or why did you feel this way? And so on and so forth. So it's getting better. Uh, the, also, the schools have been making a huge effort here, too. So, uh, for example, the school in Red Deer Montaire and they're out in BC in Pitt Meadows, too. Um, I've done some testing for them. And, and a lot of their students, they come now, and they have to pass the English test before they even touch an airplane.
1: And is that, that's a school requirement, though. So for, for people listening, the problem is uh, Canada has a good flight instruction program, right? Yeah. So, yep. their licenses are very compatible in other countries. Yes. Uh, and they're equivalent. Yes. So, it's easy to convert to, um, say, uh, a, an Indian license or a Chinese license or yes. something like that, right? Which is probably the two biggest foreign student populations. Mm-hmm. And the problem is right now is when they show up with English as a foreign language, the pronunciation isn't uh, acceptable or difficult to understand for other people on the radio. It can be. Yeah. And so, the radio communication becomes an issue when you can't understand the student pilot. And the reason that's happening is the English language proficiency test happens at the license point, not before solo, right? No,
2: it's changed now. And that you was the year ago change? Yeah, so as of last June, you have to have the English test before you go solo. Uh, they're recommending even, you know, ideally even before that. Right? Before you Within start. The first, if you can, before you start, absolutely. Um, some students, you know, because if you're not born in Canada and or you can't prove you went to high school in Canada and you've been here for a while, you have to do the test. So some of the exams I've done were actually with people from the UK. Which is funny because they <laughs> speak the Queen's English, right? Do they ever fail? No, <laughs> no, they don't. Uh, obviously, their you know their English is better than mine most of the time because you don't mark it based on like slang or accents per se. It's based on fluency, comprehension, uh, structure, a few different things, and it's based off of the ICAO guidelines, right? Have you so tested
1: somebody from Newfoundland?
2: I have, yeah. Well, not necessarily. From, like, with the Newfoundland accent, though. So, like, oh. there's the Gander Flight Training School out there. I've done a bunch for them. But, again, if you're born in Gander, you pass. You're good. You're Canadian. You have an English. You can, you'll get. So, if, if you're born in Canada, you still have to do an English exam, but it's an informal exam, That's done at your flight test. So, all pilot examiners uh, can do informal exams on people that are from Canada and speak English or French.
0: Gotcha. How about uh, French uh, people from Quebec? How, how, how do they fare? On the English exams.
2: Well, so they can, because we're bilingual, they can oh, do it yeah. and they can be French, right? Um, and only speak French. For the most part. They still should be speaking English, but they don't have to do the formal tests, per se. Because like, they can't go to the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, and even because it's the international language, they should be able to speak English. So I don't I don't know what they're doing exactly in regions like Quebec for that um, because it is the, you know, English is the international language and you're supposed to speak English on the radio, but we all know in Quebec, they don't half of the time. So it's a little bit different. And I'm like I said, I haven't, I, I don't speak French, so I'm, I am I can't talk to that side of it very much.
1: I've got friends from Alabama and Mississippi that would fail a bit. Mm-hmm. That's like not English at all.
2: <laughs> yeah, at times it definitely doesn't sound like it.
0: <laughs> what do you kind of see the split wise uh, for recreational paths versus people who are looking to potentially become a, Commercial pilot or airline
2: pilot? Really good question. Right now, it's more looking for the career, right? And not just kids out of high school. We've got quite a few people, I'd say 40 and under, that are like, let's go for it. Changing careers, right? Something they've always wanted to do and have the funds for it and can still get jobs. Like, honestly, I would say if if you want to get a job as a pilot, even if you're, even I have one friend who's, uh, you know, retiring from a career at 60 and he's going to go back in aviation, get his commercial and start flying for a pipeline company because he can't because the jobs are out there and he's not going to be going to the airlines so a pipeline company's like yes we want you because like, you, you're not going to leave in a year exactly <laughs> so you know there's there's tons of opportunity out there for all ages which is really cool uh, and so there's more career push right now but we still had we had a gentleman walk in yesterday he's like I've always wanted to do this and I want to just get up in the air and I'm going to get my license and he's super excited about it and we're like we have a wait list and he went what? why? <laughs> no idea about you know how the industry is moving but you know there's still lots of of them, I would say right now, though, it's probably more like 75, career, 25 for fun or rec. Gotcha. But that that changes, right, depending on the economy and everything probably the else. the location. Absolutely, yep.
0: Yeah, and it, do, does the, the club prioritize uh, commercial pods versus the rec, rec people or is no. it –
2: no, we try to do it, like, by, like, first come, first serve kind of a thing. We do try to help out. We've had a few people that have come, like, that have just moved to Edmonton that were already, like, halfway through their training and things like that, where we've tried to help get them back again so that they're not on this six-month waiting list of not flying.
1: Yeah, so, getting stale.
2: Exactly. So we're, tr- we're trying to help them a little bit, um, but it's, we, we really do try to stick to the list, and we'll contact the students, and sometimes it's kind of a funny thing that way, is we'll contact people, reach them out, email, phone call, and sometimes we'll just never hear from them again. they just fallen off the face of the earth. Uh, and so, okay, move on to the next one. But other ones will come and they'll be like, actually, I realized that I, you know, it's too expensive or I'm going to wait a couple months or put me to the back to the bottom of the list. Something happened in life. So even though, like, right now we have about 45, 50 people on the list, um, not necessarily all of them are ready to start right this second. Some of them, 50
1: people on a wait list? Yes. Wow.
2: I know. And that's not including, um, we have a ton of international students that have applied, but it's been quite difficult, actually, for international students to get uh, visas. Um, The biggest thing we've gotten for feedback is that they've been told or they can't prove that they're going to go home, which blew my mind a little bit. Because you're like, well, we need pilots, though. So isn't it okay if they're going to stay? But, yeah.
0: Yeah, I can see that in China where they don't want to let people leave. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So. Yeah. And, um, now, in terms of uh, recreational pilots, I, I understand there's a recreational pilot license, obviously. Well, oh, yeah. We never touched on that. Yeah, yeah. There's a recreational permit as opposed to a private, private license. Why would someone want to get a recreational instead of going full on for private?
2: Good question. Good question. The uh, the rec license is really for people that, you know, have maybe their own little grass strip uh, and want to stay fairly close to home and just rip around their What are the acreage? rules for it? There's a few different ones. I mean, you can only ever take one passenger with a recreational license. It's a, it's not a license, actually. It's a permit. So that also means you can't add on to it. So you couldn't go and get a night rating or right. a multi-engine or anything like that. You'd have to upgrade to the private pilot license first anyways and then go and do those things. So we don't have very many that do that just because it's not very practical for even recreational flying. Unless, like I said, you have your own little fun little whatever kind of plane and you're just going to fly it around. You know, fairly close. There's also less uh, instrument training in it and less navigational training. So a lot of schools will even say that if you don't have, a, if you only have a rec license, that they won't let you go more than 25 miles away from the airport because you don't have that much navigation training. So.
1: When I when I finished my private license, mm-hmm. I would not call myself functional really as a pilot. <laughs> a so with a rec permit, which yes. is the advantage of doing the rec permit, is you need less hours. Mm-hmm. That seems really limiting it to is. what you can do in like marginally really safe
2: it really is it's not uh again it it was designed a long time ago for you know guys that wanted literally they're just their little plane to rip around their farmer's field with yeah
1: with big tires and
2: yeah yeah maybe check out the kites. field find the cows right <laughs> i yeah
0: speaking of the flying farmers uh a lot of there's a lot of pilots out there like myself i, I hadn't flown for two and a half years years there Mm -hmm. you you guys offer a a lot of uh kind of rust remover type of programs (laughs) hey how how many people do you see coming in doing that
2: rusty wings we call it and uh absolutely there's usually one a month you know that shows up and is like i haven't flown in 20 years or 10 years or five years or whatever it might be is there a for that Uh, It's a pretty quick one. Usually it's about five to ten flights, depending on how rusty the person is and how much studying they do. So we can typically sometimes sneak them in a little bit and then they become renters, which is always good for us. Because then when the the planes aren't being flown with students, they're taken, they're busy, they're flying. And they go at night lots and overnight trips and such, which is always good because then the planes are gone in the evenings. Sometimes uh, they'll be, you know, they'll leave at like five in the afternoon and come back the next morning at ten or something like that. So, um, you know, there's perks there. So... Rusty Wayne, guys, they, you know, we start them off, and some of them it comes back like that, right? Like riding a bike. Others, you know, we have to go a little bit slower through it, and they haven't really had the time to study for it. And so, it, again, it's like anything in, in training. It depends a little bit on the individual as to how long it takes them to get it done. They will also have to do the P star, but the, the pilot license never actually expires. You just have to keep it valid. Um, Which with, is that
1: two-year thing, right?
2: Well, the validity of your license is actually your medical. So you have to keep your class one or class three medical. Uh, and then the currency is the two-year thing. So there's the it two tends. and the five-year. So the five years is when you'd have to write the P star again. Um, two, there's a few different things in there you can do to, within your two-year currency.
1: What, what's the rule in Canada again? So if you haven't flown in five years, you have to redo the P star.
2: Yes, and get signed off by an instructor again.
1: It's five without getting in an airplane in five years. That's yeah. the rule. So if I get in at four years and six months,
2: yeah, technically, I can just go. you don't have to do the P
1: star.
2: Yeah, yeah. Like, most so, uh, no school's going to let you do that.
1: <laughs> no, but if you had Even your own mind. airplane, you could. But
2: yeah, technically. Very few people do that. That's one of the things about pilots is we're where most of us realize that, hey, this is a safety thing. Yeah, and that's been, like, beaten into you since day one of training. So, you know, you have to be current and you should be current or you could really hurt yourself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's the five takeoffs and landings every six months to take passengers. Right. And that's day, night. And it has to do with, is it type or? I always mix that up. Because in the multi, like, for multi-engine flying, you have to have five takeoffs and landings at night in the multi as well as in a single depending on what you're flying. Right, So I also fly a Navajo and, and I used to fly Conquest and I'm starting to <laughs> starting to fly an, an, a Citation, which I'm really pumped about. Um, and have to be, so if I have a flight where I have to like leave in the morning and come back at night, I have to be current in the multi-engine at night too. So I have and then to not go.
1: fly for a while and you'd lose it. <laughs>
2: exactly. So it could be oh. a bit of a pain in the neck that way. But thankfully our twins, sometimes I'll be like, and yeah, I'm going to go for some night circuits. So it can work.
1: Okay. Here's a question for you. Sure. G1000 Mm -hmm. or steam gauges? Both. What do you recommend?
2: Both. How's that work? Absolutely both. With
1: 45 hours, how do you switch back and forth? So
2: we're really lucky here at the club because we have both options. Um, Ultimately, they're showing you the exact same information. Yeah. Right? It's like driving a Mazda versus driving a Ford. The in in car display is a little bit different but it doesn't take you very long to figure out what it is and yeah, find the your buttons the and knots exactly it's the same sort of idea with the g1000 versus steam i did all my ab initial training on the steam and at first learning the g1000 i remember thinking like oh my god there's so many buttons but for the flying portion it's actually easier because instead of a six pack now you have a four pack yeah and then going back from the four pack to the six it's like oh it's just split into a six pack and so i mean the attitude indicator is still your key instrument. It's still in the middle, right? Airspeed and altimeter are on the same sides. So it's just about, again, just comprehending what you're looking at, which can take some people a little bit longer, I guess, than others, depending on, on what. But I think it's really good to have experience in both. Because, I mean, I remember when I first started flying, and the G1000s and such first came out. They said, oh, your first job will never be on a, you'll never see that. Versus now, some of our guys are getting hired because they have G1000 experience.
1: I found, I, like, I didn't get into D D-1000 until I was probably 100 hours or so, mm-hmm. flying with, like, Scott McCloud and that DA-40 yeah
2: that
1: you guys used to have. And I found I got sucked into it. Like, I find...
2: You can. It's very pretty and shiny. Well, it's also got
1: <laughs> all these extra utility features, like, yeah. descending and, like, autopilots and You can
2: play with that navigation. thing until the cows come home.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. So I'd be sitting there playing with it, and i look up, and there'd be a big tower right there.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you have so to it's be... that kind of thing. You have to pay attention. And, like, with us, with that Initial training, we put it on the revisionary mode. You're not playing with all that stuff. One mode? It's called revisionary mode. So that's when both screens go to just basically your, your flight controls and your engine gauges. Oh, yeah. Right? So it's like a
1: six-pack. Yeah. Um,
2: and you get rid of the the map and all the bells and whistles and such. So we kind of try to get them really comfortable. I've issue with training in general is eyes out the window anyways, right? Very minimal that you need to be inside for. Yeah. So at that commercial level like you were at of getting – knowing a different airplane and starting to play with some of those things – you still have to kind of balance it out and recognize that, right? Like you're going, holy crap, like I've been looking inside too much. And that's when it's, you know, getting to know all of those fancy things can be really helpful. The IFR is really great for teaching you a bunch of well, that's what that how is. that all works. And then you're supposed to be looking inside anyways. Yeah. You're filed to be looking inside. You know, you still probably have a safety pilot, have an instructor at first anyways. So, you know, that's that's when that becomes more relevant okay cool yeah well it was really fun to chat about it. and like i said the wings banquet you're we both alumni so you should definitely come june 1st we have uh, rosella bjornson who's the first uh, female airline pilot that's going to be our guest speaker in canada uh, yeah so she's uh, fantastic and really great we've got a big silent auction too we're still looking for some things but we've got some pretty cool prizes to give away and bid on and all that good stuff so it starts at five o'clock and it's here at the parkland airport at the image flying club so Oh. So
1: when you get this thing posted before that, yep. if
2: you can, yeah, <laughs> there you go. I just set a deadline for you or you can just cut that out. It's fine. <laughs> no,
1: I'll have it up. He's good at editing.
2: That's good.
1: So yeah, it's funny. I, uh, I, I was at a bachelor party a while ago. I guess I ran into Dean Braithwaite. Yeah.
2: yeah. That's awesome. It's such a small world. I uh, was at the airport not that long ago and I was talking to somebody before we we're going wherever we we're going and I hear that sounds like so that is so fire. And i have like, a. The girl just barrels at me and huge bear hug and it was one of our past instructors Ashley Sweet who now flies for WestJet this oh, is awesome I it's flew here. with her twice yeah, yeah we had a
1: radio failure together
2: twice yeah that's right I
0: haven't seen her in a while since
2: yeah you she remember living that? in Calgary I do remember that yeah
0: I, I, remember that? I feel there's a story here that I need to hear about no just the radio stopped working right after we took off
2: yeah
1: and clearly she has a really good memory because I almost forgot that. <laughs> that happened to me. Well,
2: when those things kind of happen, they stick with you a little bit, right? Incident oh, yeah. reports is the chief. That's part of my job of why did it happen and what can we do to fix it and all those good things.
1: Oh, that Quality makes sense. Assurance. Do you want to um, – so we're technically still recording, but mm-hmm. we can cut out whatever you want. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the incidents that the flying club has had or is that something that you'd rather not make public?
2: Um, you know, it's – It's not really my place to talk about some of them because I wasn't a part of a lot of, like, some of them. Um, I mean, any flight school is going to have incidents. It's kind of the that's how students work it is right i mean we're we've got a pretty good record and i've you know the times that i've been here we have had you know a couple of i mean we're always you're always going to have minor incidents of things like that like the radio failing or of someone getting a cylinder head temperature gauge that's not working anymore or or, you know whatever it might be we had a a student the other day that um forgot to check that asked the the, one of the staff of the dispatchers to to fill them up and then didn't check that it was actually done and, like, they were fine, right? They got to their destination and went, oh and the gauges in the G1000, especially if you ever run out of gas in there, you're blind because it, like, flashes at you and all these things. And yeah. So he landed and he's like, I thought I had full tanks. And, like, at that point realized, like, shoot, I didn't look. I didn't check the gas. It was a really good lesson. And he filled up in, in wherever he was. in his bar head or something. So not even far, right? Good for
1: him for reporting it.
2: And of, of course, right? So that's one of the big things we're big on here at the club is non-punitive reporting. So if something does happen... Let's learn from it. Let's all learn from it. Let's fix it. Let's find ways to make it safer and better. Uh, Exactly, and I mean that's that's the industry in general, right? If you especially if you want to work in this, if something goes wrong, you need to talk about it. You need to report it. We need to figure out the root cause of it and make sure we make it better.
1: Well, I I remember when I was. I flew the day 20 once when it was kind of hot out, like five degrees or something. I left the winter fronts in. Uh Oh, yeah. And overheated, like, by the time I made it to Hende, Yeah. And, oh, man, I've never flown back so fast in my life to the city.
2: Yeah, anxious and nervous. And you learn a lot from those kind of things, right? Oh, yeah. And, I mean, honestly, nothing – like, the airplane was fine at the end of that, right? So a lot of those things are pretty – really, like, stressful or incidents. A lot of the time are pretty darn minor when you consider the grand scheme of things. So.
1: Yeah, I bet very rarely do you actually have damage. And probably most of them are students doing something stupid like flying under a wire.
2: Well thankfully we've not had anybody do that really like that I've known of. Um, the one we've had a couple of weird ones. We had a mystery one fairly recently where one of the students was doing a walk around and noticed on the belly there was a, a scratch and at first you would just look it was like a scratch in the paint, but it was like it was actually like a I don't know, how big was it, like a, a two, three centimeter deep scratch. Gouge? Wow. And, yeah, it was more of a gouge, you're right. And we still, to this, like, we asked everybody, like, hey, did anyone see what this happened? And, I, and so we kind of have a hunch that somebody did it without even realizing they did it. It's
1: like taxi over a bush?
2: Something. I don't know. Because it's a weird thing. Like, it was a weird direction. And, and you know, it was a strange one. So, you know, we do all these quality assurances and try to figure out, okay, well, what was that? Well, how does this work? And, and all those different things. And, and that's aviation. I mean, gosh, I don't know if you saw recently, I think it was Air Canada Jazz or Express that... A truck ran into it. A mm-hmm. full on ran into it. And like, <laughs> whoa. So, I mean, and who, I, I don't know what happened there. there. I'm sure there's a story, but little things can happen all the time. Our plane will get bumped when a different one was getting moved or whatnot. And sometimes you can, you know, most of the time you figure out what it is. And other times you just have to be really cautious and trying to think like what could have caused that. And we've come up with a couple extra safety things just in case like, well, maybe it was this, maybe it was a tow bar and it got kind of hung up on something. Or yeah. maybe it was, you know, that they, they were at an airport in the wintertime. Because this happened in the winter, and maybe there was a taxi light they didn't really see, or or, or some fog. That's likely, right? And that they just and they just maybe taxied over it. And the amazing part of it, why they wouldn't have noticed, is the propeller wasn't damaged and the tires weren't damaged at all. It was just the scratch. So kind of a, a weird one, right? So <laughs> it makes you think of all these potential hazards. Um, so even when it is something that you know it sucks that the plane had to get fixed and whatever else had to get all this cool repairing. It was neat to see it because we got to see they did all the repairs here. So we got to see the airplane taken apart and how they fixed it was really, really neat. And they they enjoyed it too because it was a little different. Um, We made this huge quality assurance of, okay, what happened and how did it happen? What could have happened? And how could we prevent it if it was this, 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 or this? So it's... uh, You have to rule out everything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that's the biggest thing with, with incidents that we try to be really proactive about is... Even the littlest thing happens. Let's talk about it. Let's figure it out. Let's make it better. So that hopefully we don't make the same mistake again. And our future predecessors and whatnot don't make the same mistakes either. And they can learn from the same things that we've gone through.
1: I've noticed that in most of the flying club incidents or damage, airplane damage situations I've seen, mm-hmm. they tend to happen in the older airplanes. So I guess that's a benefit to having a newer fleet and paying a little bit more. Absolutely. Because I'm guessing you see a bump in your reliability, airplane reliability.
2: Absolutely. Way less
1: electrical failures, radial mm-hmm. failures, that kind of thing.
2: Knock on wood, we haven't had anything like that. Yeah. Um, the biggest one has been like a sensor detach. So like one of the EGT sensors, it's, it'll show a little X. And right on the G1000, it shows, hey, there's an X there. It's not working. So then it's just this, you have to order the sensor. So it's something, you know, simple. That's not going to put an airplane down at all, right? It's going to be deferred and right back online within seconds. Uh, So the the types of things that go wrong on the new aircraft, too, are a lot less, you know, time-consuming and a lot less maintenance overhaul time.
1: Yeah, and they're probably easier, too, because everything's not dirty. and
2: Yeah, well, and we take really good care of our planes. We've tried really, really hard, the whole team, uh, to keep the airplanes clean, to get the, you know, we give them the baths and scrubbing in kind of dirt and stuff off of them and inside and outside, winter and summer.
0: Yeah, it's one of the things I noticed whenever I'm renting a plane here. I, I just did a, a rating at a different place, and their mm-hmm. planes are a lot more grimy and whatnot. Here, they're always clean. They're always, you know, you're very... I feel confident getting in the planes here for sure. So.
2: Thanks. We, we take value in it and, and pride in it, right? These airplanes are not cheap, and we want them to last a really long time. And we, we hope our members can feel that too if they ever do buy airplanes or, you know, working in the industry. A lot of the time your first job, guess what? You're going to be cleaning the belly of that King Air <laughs> or whatever you're flying. So, you know, it's you want to appreciate and see, oh, yeah, the planes are kept clean. We need to keep them clean, so on and so forth.
1: That, that's what I found in private ownership, too, of mm-hmm. airplanes. If the airplane looks old, it's probably not cheap. You might have paid less for it up front, but it's probably not cheap to keep.
2: Yeah.
1: Maintenance-wise. That's very and You guys true. probably see that, too, where your maintenance becomes more every 25 hours, you do the same thing. Yeah. And then uh, older airplanes could be more like, well, this has failed, this has failed. You might only make 20 or 15 hours or whatever.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's uh, definitely a factor. Mm-hmm.
1: Anything else? no i think think we got everything all right let's wrap it up
2: cool thanks for having
1: me thank you thanks for coming